I'm Newell Bringhurst, and you're listening to Gospel Tangents. The best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. I'm excited to have Newell Bringhurst back on the show. He's the biographer of Harold B. Lee. Harold is interesting in the fact that he probably had the shortest tenure of any church uh, LDS prophet, but he has a reach that extends far beyond his presidency with his dabbling in correlation. So it's going to be a great conversation. You won't want to miss it. Check it out. Welcome to Gospel Tangents. I'm excited to have a return guest. I think this is his fourth time. You're, you're, you're coming up there with Matt Harris. I've had him on <laughs> So tell us who you are first. Well, I'm Newell Bringhurst, and uh, as, uh, as uh, Rick has pointed out, I've been on Gospel Tangents uh, three previous times. I'm an independent scholar, retired professor of history and political science from College of the Sequoias in Visalia, California. And I've had a, I guess I'd say, a, a, a lifelong passion and interest in Latter-day Saint history and uh, studies. Yes. So one of my favorite historians, Noel, I, I don't know if you knew that, but that's true. So so we're here to talk about, I think this is your latest book, isn't it? Yes, it is. So why don't you show, show us to the camera uh, this book that we're going to be talking about today? Harold B. Lee, His Life and Thought. And uh, it was uh, an unintended biography. I had no intention whatsoever of doing this biography, unlike other uh works, major works that I've done in the past. I usually say, I want to look at that topic or that individual more carefully. And Harold B. Lee was one of those that came out of left field, so to speak. It was actually Gary Bajera who coerced me uh, with a $5,000 honorarium if I would do a biography, a short biography for this series that they've, uh, they're have they putting together, uh, which is akin to... Uh, uh, sh- the various short biography series that have been done on American historical figures, on world historical figures. Uh, a, a short, they wanted a short, succinct biography. And I, I, I couldn't resist uh, the temptation to do it because I'd previously done a short, uh, similarly short biography on Brigham Young for the Library of American Biography series, which was as edited by... Uh, the prestigious uh, Harvard historian Oscar Handlin. And uh, I guess Gary was in kind of the role of being the local Oscar Handlin in uh, being the overall supervisorial uh, editor of this series. And this is, mine was the first in a series of biographies on, short biographies on major uh, Mormon figures. Uh, the the second one that just recently came out is one to buy, get done by Gary Topping on uh, Michael Quinn. Oh yes, yes, that's that's another one. I, I've I've read this one. I haven't read that one yet. So so I'm I'm excited to talk about Harold B. Lee because I know you told me off camera one time that that he was not your favorite character. Far from it. I always looked at him as counter a little bit of a counter figure because. He, uh, I, I guess a lot of it was uh, his uh, very conservative views, uh, orthodox conservative views, uh, particularly on the issue of race, because he kind of stood out to me as a major figure who stood in the way of lifting the black priesthood ban uh, when, uh, when Hubie Brown 
was pushing for it to be lifted back in 1969. And he put the kibosh on that. He was the one that said, well, instead of uh, lifting the ban, we're going to reassert the ban as essential Mormon doctrine, which was done through the 1969 uh, statement saying that it is a doctrine. And, uh, and, and, and that had reinforced an earlier statement when it was first proclaimed as being doctrine back in 1949. It was like a re, uh, restatement of what had been said 20 years earlier, a sort of doubling down on the part of Harold B. Lee. So, as I say, he was not one of my favorite figures because I had, uh, as, as you're aware, I had done a number of, of careful studies on the Black Priesthood Band. Saints, Slaves, and Blacks, which is a great book, by the way. And you've got a new second edition out, right? Right. Uh, yeah, Greg Colford has just, uh, 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 has just published this. I think it was 2018, 2019, when they reissued it at, with a new introduction uh, and, and uh, some additional material uh, that I, I, I left the text pretty much as I had originally written it because I, I didn't feel like my ideas had really changed that much and I felt in fact that they had been affirmed and confirmed by uh, subsequent scholars including Armin Moss and Paul Reeve who Paul incidentally who wrote a very wonderful generous uh, uh, pro, uh, prologue or, or uh, epilogue to the reissue. Yeah, Paul wrote uh, Religion of a Different Color, and he's coming up with a new book on the um, 1852 legislature. Which right, I yeah. I, I, I was talking to Paul earlier this year, and I said, Do, can I talk to you before or after your book comes out? He told me after, and I was like, no, I wanted before. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't realize he was doing a whole book. I know he's been working very closely with, uh, with a couple of other scholars, uh, and... Uh, the woman who has uh, been able, who worked for the church, who was able to, to decipher the shorthand. Lejeune Carruth. The Lejeune Carruth, and uh, with a lawyer, and I can't remember his name Chris now. Chris Rich. Chris Rich. I know he's been working on, on that particular uh, crucial uh, period with those two scholars, so I'm not sure if this is going to be uh, in conjunction with them or not. I, I thought it was just going to be an article length. I didn't realize he was doing a whole book. A whole book. I, yeah, I think he's done with the book. It's to the publisher, but, you oh. know, sometimes that that's review interesting. process yeah. takes a while. Yeah. So. so I believe that's correct. Hopefully that's right, Paul. <laughs> so, Paul, you're next. No. <laughs> well, let's dive into Harold B. Lee, his life and thought. So one of the interesting things is I think he was ordained as a 10-year-old deacon. Is that, is that That's correct. Right? Yeah, that's very unusual because I didn't realize that was even within uh, legal uh, or within church, uh, uh, you know, canon, that they would allow somebody to be ordained as a 10-year-old deacon. And that was reflective of his precocity, that he was extremely bright. Uh, he stood out in terms of his intellect and his drive and just who he was. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's pretty precocious. <laughs> <laughs> Ten-year-old deacon. So, and it seems like he, he grew up in Idaho. Was yeah. it near Ezertown Benson, I think it was? Uh, yeah, they were, they, they were close. They lived close to one another, but they never knew each other until they got into uh, uh, Oneida Academy, which was sort of like the high school up there. They never really met or knew each other. But he lived in Clifton, Idaho, which is a very small town. 
in the upper Cache Valley. It, it, it's a pretty rugged environment up there because it's about a 4,000 foot ele uh, elevation, harsh winters. And so, it, it, you know, if you farm up there, it's a very precarious existence. And he, he grew up in that precarious existence. Uh, uh, I mean, the family struggled financially, and that was something I think that stayed with, uh, uh, with Harold B. Lee is the, the struggle of his own family to eke out a livelihood in that, in, in that environment. Of, uh, I, I should mention there was one other famous, uh, you know, noteworthy person that came out of that small town, which has never had a population more than uh, two or 3,000, even right down to the present. It stayed pretty much the same size it was when uh, Harold B. Lee was a boy. But interestingly enough, the other very noteworthy person to come out of that town is, uh, is, is Tara Westover, who is the author of Educated. And she talks about her hard scrabble childhood. And her, her parents were kind of nutty types. And, and unlike Harold B. Lee's, they, they were very, they were almost on like, uh, they were LDS, they were Mormon, but they were survivalist Mormons. They were right on the edge of, of, of the church, so to speak. Right, right, yeah. That's uh, I should get her on sometime. So yeah, that's 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 an interesting story. Now I know it seems like Harold's father got into some financial shenanigans with the church, right? Well, yes. I mean, it's interesting. It was almost a a, a product of not his being, uh, you know, uh, being doing anything of, of a malevolent nature, but almost of of his uh, generosity. Uh, in terms of, uh, well, but also trying to survive their own financial problems. Uh, he, was, uh, he was the bishop of the ward up there. And uh, shortly after, about the time that Harold B. Lee came from, back from his mission in, uh, in Colorado, uh, his father was disfellowshipped for the misappropriation of funds. And it's unclear what exactly was involved in the misappropriation of funds, whether they took them for their, you know, he, he siphoned them off for his own use. I've never, I've, I haven't followed that up that closely, but uh, it was, it was an, a shattering experience, not just for, uh, for Samuel uh, Lee, uh, Harold's father, but for the whole family. And, and it had a profound impact on, on, on Harold B. Lee. And I think it helped to reinforce in him his kind of very careful conservatism in the handling of church funds. I, I think that came right down into his uh, period as an as apostleship and also as president uh, you know, of the church that uh, he didn't want to get into a situation where that was going to be a problem in, in, in the church as a whole. Well, and I know some, some uh, similar uh, issue came up later, I think when he was a church leader, that someone had misused funds, and he was like, hey, look what happened to my dad, you're going you're gonna to yeah. be treated the same way. Well, I, yeah, I, I think a lot of it had to do with the, the building program in the early 1960s, and uh, it, it involved, uh, in, involved I'm, I'm trying to think of his name now, he was a uh, high church leader and 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 that's terrible i can't i, I as i said it's been a while since i wrote the book but it was one of the uh, uh it, it, uh, the mendenhall i think was the head of the buildings program and 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 there was an apostle who was over that uh a fellow apostle 
whom uh, he was he was junior to uh, to Harold B. Lee in terms of seniority, but he was older. He was uh, isn't that terrible? I'm I'm having this uh, this uh, this what do you call it a a brain fart. Sorry about the term, but it, 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 if you if you knew his name, and I was just looking at it earlier, he, he you'd know the name if you heard it because a very prominent family in Salt Lake. They they were a law family, and he died suddenly when all of this was going on. Uh, you know who I'm talking about. I do, but I can't remember the name either. <laughs> but you would know the name immediately. Unfortunately, this book doesn't have a table of contents, so I can't refer to it very quickly. But he died in the middle of this, and and uh, I guess N. Eldon Tanner was brought in to replace him and uh, to clean up this mess that it, that that he had caused through he and Mendenhall. Moyle, was it? Was it Moyle? Moyle, Henry D. Moyle. Thank go, you very it. much. Very prominent uh, Utah family and very, you know, they, they were among the uh, royalty. They were very well fixed financially. And uh, Moyle and, and uh, Lee, both bright, intelligent men, but both very strong-willed. Moyle, who came out of a very privileged background, uh, didn't have too much trouble saying, oh, I, I, I can spend as much as I want on these things. Whereas Lee, who comes out of a much more stringent background said, hey, we're going too far, we're going too far. And, and, and so the church was in financial, uh, you know, kind of in a, in, a, in a financial bind during this, during the 1960s. And so they were looking for ways to try to recoup. And, and as I say, when Moyle died, Tanner was brought in and he, he kind of ended up straightening out things and, uh, and Eldon Tanner yeah, he, he really, because I know under McKay, the church was really in some financial difficulties because they had overspent uh, the tithing funds and that thing with the building programs. So. Yeah. And I think uh, Tanner kind of led us to where we've got $100 billion now today, right? Yeah, I mean, he turned out to be a very, very uh, efficient administrator and, and uh, one of the more effective of, of, of the church leaders who came along during this period. Right, right. So uh, one of the other interesting things was to learn about uh, President Lee's feelings on prohibition. Can you talk about that? Well, he, you know, he was serving in politics at that time when they were uh, lifting the uh, when 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 uh, uh, the the prohibition, uh, the Eighteenth uh, Amendment, uh, was in effect. And, uh, and he was on the Salt Lake City uh, Commission, and he had been appointed that position, but he had to run for a full term. He was filling out the term of somebody who had passed on and, and was on there by appointment. So in the 32 election, uh, he was up for re-election. And, and uh, you know, there, there was, uh, and also on the ballot, what complicated his candidacy was there was this measure to repeal the uh, 18th Amendment, and you know, uh, and uh, Utah happened to be the uh, the one state left that needed to they needed the vote to to lift the uh, lift prohibition, right. and so he was kind of placed in the position of uh, of where do you stand on this, and and quite frankly, he ended up kind of finessing the issue. He didn't really come right out. I'm either for it or against it, but he. Did the politically expedient thing and saying that uh, uh, that that he wasn't in favor of going back to the way the saloons were before prohibition, 
but he wasn't in favor. He, he indicated that prohibition hadn't quite worked the way that it should, but he did it in a very nuanced way. He, he, so when he needed to be uh, carefully political, he was able to finesse that issue and, and overcome opposition because he was opposed for uh, you know, a full term on the Salt Lake City Commission. And, uh, and, and, and he, I, I think he would have been an effective uh, office holder because he, he had the intelligence and the, and the uh, uh, ability to, and the perception of uh, doing that because he was urged to run for governor two different times. In 1940, there were people urging him to run for the Republican nomination for governor. And then again in 40, uh, in 44, after he'd been appointed to the apostleship, after he was an apostle, they wanted to try to get him to run uh, for, uh, and a delegation of leading Republicans urged him to run. But again, he declined. And then uh, one last time in 46, uh, again, there was a, a groundswell of opinion to get him within the Republican Party to get him to run for United States senator because the incumbent uh, senator at that time, a guy named Abe Murdoch, appeared to be very vulnerable. And they thought if they got a strong enough candidate and 46 was a year of Republican ascendancy. And that was a year the, that it, it could have happened because uh, and at that time, uh, both uh, J. Reuben Clark, who had initially told Lee to hold back in 40 and 44, uh, Reuben Clark was saying, you know, seemed to give the OK sign, as did David O. McKay. But the one missing person who was not there to kind of give the green light was George Albert Smith, who was president of the church at that time. And for whatever reasons, he was not he, he was out of town or incapacitated or something because he had frail health. And so uh, he was unable to get the final approval because he could have very well run in 46. I mean, he came so close. And, and that's when he was still an apostle. So the history of the church could have turned out very much differently in terms of his, his, the trajectory of his life career. So he would have been an apostle senator just like Reed Smoot? Well, I don't know. I, you know, I, I guess that's a possibility because certainly what happened uh, prior with, like you say, with Smoot and subsequently with, uh, with uh, Ezra Taft Benson serving concurrently as Secretary of, uh, of Agriculture and still maintaining his apostleship. I, I, I guess there was precedent for that. I, I don't know if he would have... That, that would have been an interesting situation because it would have been a, a replication of what Smoot had done uh, some 40 years earlier. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Um, so one of his big accomplishments before he became an apostle was with the welfare system. Can you talk about his what happened there? Well, that was uh, came out of the uh, distress of the Great Depression and the strong anti-New Deal uh, attitudes that existed within the highest uh, uh, within the leadership of the church on the part of uh, of uh, J. Reuben Clark and and why were they so against the New well, Deal? Well, they they felt like it was uh, too much government intervention. There was always this in within within the church. There's always been this kind of leeriness about too much government overreach. You know, a lot of that, I think, goes back to, to when uh, the anti-polygamy things that went on in the late 19th century. They, they were just always very leery of, of, of you know, interventionist federal government. And they felt that uh, the New Deal program was encouraging uh, people to not, uh, you know, uh, to, to 
not take advantage of their own initiative and and laziness and and so on and and they felt that the you know it was too much like a dole just giving them paying for not doing anything and 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 you know, there's socialism. always been that strong that yeah uh, well i guess you could say socialism or or too much uh, uh, i just too much government giving people destroying people's self-initiative to go out there and and do something for themselves and so the welfare program was an attempt to take that away from the federal government you know the idea of relief but they would play a, the people would play a role in their own relief because uh, what what would set, what was set up it was based on uh, taking uh, uh, the 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 foundation was uh, agriculture that uh, they would uh, take the uh, agricultural crops and process them you know set up their own uh, uh, plants or bottling you know uh, canning factories and stuff like that to to take agricultural produce and and then uh, make it available so people would 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 be involved in within the church. Would be involved in in and it would give them work and it would take this surplus because there's a lot of agricultural surplus out there and and uh, make it available to those those who needed it and uh, so that was that was the basis was you you uh, take these uh, this the the agricultural surplus make it into uh, food and and other commodities and then along that they also created you know. A, making clothing and and so on and and also involved in building and and that and so uh it, and and the people that would be involved they would provide employment and then they would also benefit from what was being produced whereas at this very time the the new deal they were actually destroying agricultural crops through this uh, through through the uh, uh, the relief the, through the programs are being set up because they said uh, the federal government was saying we're going to destroy these crops so that the prices will go up because the prices for farm commodities was so low and that, uh, you had a surplus and so uh, so they kind of had the opposite approach instead of taking the commodities and destroy them within uh, uh, the church welfare program they were taking those surplus commodities and and producing them and and, and distributing them to members within the church so it made a lot of common sense the way mm -hmm. the program the rationale for the program but it 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 it, uh, it helped a, a good number of people within the church so there was a, a degree of success but the irony is the majority of latter-day saints continued to be involved in New Deal programs. It wasn't just, you know, the agricultural commodities program, but in various work projects programs that were going on, uh, you know, inter uh, roads and bridges and and uh, other types of, uh, a, a lot of people were involved in, in uh, including Latter-day Saints, a good percentage of Latter-day Saints. And so it was, it was a mixed success in terms of, of getting people uh, away from government, uh, you know, relief so to yeah, speak <laughs> yeah so so he was really recognized for this welfare program, yeah he was right? national he became a national figure and that's what kind of propelled him and in, 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 into the limelight both within uh, within the church hierarchy where they saw him as a as a future church leader and within the secular political community who wanted to see him run for public office so i mean uh, the whole his whole setting up of the church welfare program which started out in his stake he started out in the pioneer stake with the with a local stake uh, centered 
relief program uh, upon which was a template on which the churchwide program was uh, set up. Were there any people within the church that were opposed to anything? Oh yes, there were. I mean, there were there were were several people, including uh, Richards, Stephen A. Richards, and uh, a guy named Sylvester Cannon, who interestingly enough was the presiding bishop because I think he saw it, uh, he clearly saw it as kind of an invasion of his bailiwick because the presiding bishop was over, you know, food distribution and, and uh, you know, that, that, that type of thing within the church itself. So I, I think it was a turf battle on the part of Sylvester Cannon, but the big proponent who was supporting uh, Lee and it was, of course, J. Reuben Clark. He, he, he became... That's an interesting story in and of itself because Clark was Lee's mentor. I mean, he looked to Lee looked to Clark as a father figure, both uh, emotionally as well as spiritually in every way, kind of replacing his disgraced father with whom, after all of this stuff happened up in Idaho, uh, you know, really was a broken man. I mean, he... He was never uh, able to get over uh, that. Oh, yeah. I mean, poor, uh, uh, poor Samuel Lee... I mean, he ended up being a night watchman at ZCMI, and uh, he he just a sad figure, a sad, sad figure. Hmm. Interesting. Can you talk a little bit more about uh, Lee and Clark's interactions together? Uh, yes. They, as I say, it was it was very much of a like a father son relationship. Uh, I mean, Clark was supporting uh, Lee in in everything that he did in the welfare program initially he was a strong proponent and he was the one that got him uh, put on the uh, 12 i mean he was the primary driving force in getting this young whippersnapper who was only 41 years old yeah. when he was ordained uh, to the 12 in 1942 that's really and, young. and i mean that that is really young uh and uh, and so uh, it it was it was Clark's initiative that said this man's going to be he's going to be it because I'm sure at the time he was calculating that being put on there as so much younger than any of the apostles he was going to be a future church president because he he was some 22 years younger than the next uh, youngest guy on the count on the on the 12 when he went on who was Sylvester Cannon. The guy that had opposed him is kind of interesting. They, 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 they took old Sylvester. He came from a very prominent family, the Cannon family, and and Sylvester Cannon was sort of pushed off as, uh, uh, eased out as as uh, uh, presiding bishop, and then they found a vacancy on the twelve to to put him on, and so he was the uh, second most junior apostle when Lee was appointed. Uh, you know, it, it, at at age forty one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And he was in his 60s. <laughs> right, right. So it's interesting. I know one of the things that really struck me, um, you know, there was a, an attempt uh, with, with President McKay's administration to send some missionaries to Nigeria, and Lee opposed that. Yes, very much so. I, I, uh, as I said, the thing that kind of I found the most uh, problematic, in my opinion, about Lee was his attitudes on race. I mean, right. it, it conformed with his basic conservatism, his his neo-orthodoxy and his conservatism. He wasn't a blatant, outright racist like uh, some of the people that uh, that uh, you know that were really in, into the racist theology. He 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 said his piece on the race issue in. Uh, 
uh, Youth of a Noble Birthright, which was uh, published in a, in a book, uh, which was originally a radio speech that he gave in 1945 and all, uh, subsequently published in, in, you know, uh, in, in a book, uh, Youth and the Church. And he defended the traditional you know, arguments that they, they had been less valued in the pre-existence. They were a, an accursed, dark-skinned race. I mean, he, 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 uh, he uh, went along with all of those arguments, but he didn't state them over and over and over again the way that uh, people like, uh, uh, like uh, President Joseph Fielding Smith did, who was the leading theologian who, who really articulated and, 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 and made him up to a fine, sharp point, or like, uh, uh, like his son-in-law, Bruce R. McConkie, who, who uh, proclaimed it Mormon doctrine in, that, uh, in, in the work that was published and, uh, in, 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 in 1959, or, 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 or people like, uh, uh, I guess, uh, Alvin R. Dwyer, there, you know, or Marky e. Peterson. I guess Marky e. Peterson gave one of the most, uh, I guess, uh, appointed arguments but Lee was not that way I mean he was steadfast in his belief that blacks were not worthy to receive the priesthood and and until the Lord spoke that was going to be the doctrine of the church it would take the Lord speaking loud and clear to uh, uh, to, to make it clear that uh, the ban was to be lifted and he had no inspiration whatsoever that the Lord was speaking loud and clear to him to lift the ban. And that was irrevocable right up until the time of his death. As I pointed out in that letter that he writes to uh, uh, Hubie Brown's uh, daughter oh, yes. concerning uh, Hubie Brown's granddaughter who had married a black man. And he, uh, it's interesting because uh, she, her name is Jorgensen, Rila Jorgensen. She's writing Lee saying, gosh, I, 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 my son-in-law is just so distraught over, he feels like he's in a cursed, he's part of an accursed race. He's not even worthy to be a Latter-day Saint and refuses to be baptized into the church. And uh, Lee responds to that, uh, this is three months before his death. And Lee responds to that letter by, uh, by not just completely ignoring the anguish of this young man and proceeding to lecture uh, Hugh Brown's daughter on that, uh, that the ban, you know, on, on the justification for the ban. He makes no reference at all to the anguish or the feelings of this young man because he is so adamantly opposed to, and he's, he's already doubled down on the, the uh, on, 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 on the, legitimacy of the ban in the wake of uh, Stephen R. Ta L. Taggart's book, which came out in the late 60s, and Lester Bush's article, he has doubled down that the ban is fixed doctrine. There's no question in his mind. And I, th I don't think, it, uh, you know, I sh in, in his, I, I must say in his defense, but, in, you know, as, as a counter-argument, I think it's part of his overall belief in, in the orthodoxy of Mormon doctrine, conservative orthodoxy of Mormon doctrine and practices in general. It's not because of a, I, I don't see him as a blatant racist per se. I just see him as seen as fixed because this is the way the church has operated since uh, going back to the mid 19th century. 
Well, and it seems like he and Hubie Brown did a lot of battles in the in the 1960s, especially because I I know Brown as early as 1962 was trying to overturn. Yes, the band. and 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 he was. I mean that they, they uh, it was interesting because their relationship initially was very congenial. They they worked together back during World War II. They were on the servicemen's uh, uh, committee, uh, you know, working with the LDS servicemen serving during World War II. And in fact, Lee was so impressed with uh, working with Brown as, you know, uh, saying he's done such a great job, I, I just hope he gets to be an apostle. I mean, this was back in the 40s. And so at that period of time, and, 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 and they, they had a very congenial relationship, but they broke with one another over the race issue. And that came later. That came in the uh, 1960s when Brown was pushing to lift the ban and uh, and Lee was just the opposite, saying it's got to stay in place. It's fixed doctrine. Was Brown Jr. to Lee that? Yes, he was, was. Uh, yeah. in, in, in seniority, because Brown wasn't even ordained an apostle. I think it was it was in the late 50s, I think 57, 58. And and so Lee had been, you know, Lee had been on on, you know, had been one of the 12 since the early 40s. And so he was by far a junior apostle. But the interesting thing is. McKay elevated him shortly after he'd been ordained apostle, elevated him to the first presidency right. in the early 19, uh, in the early 1960s when they, you know, and so he, in, in terms of the lines of authority, it looked like he, you know, the Brown was the senior figure because now he was a counselor in the first presidency. And so uh, Brown felt that he had the clout that he could push forward with his agenda to give blacks the priesthood, and uh, and 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 so uh, whereas uh, Lee looked at him and you know could say you know didn't say directly to him, but he he he's coming at it from I'm I'm a senior apostle to him, and uh, so that's one of the reasons why he was dropped uh, from from the first presidency after the death of David O. McKay in 1970. And uh, and and uh, when uh, under the presidency of Joseph Fielding Smith, the supreme irony is that uh, when the pre first presidency is reorganized, uh, Brown is dropped as first counselor, on and McKay's Lee, death, uh, yeah, well, on, on, yeah, after after his death, and and uh, Lee is installed as first counselor in the place of Brown. So, I mean, he's kind of taken over that position, and so. You know the ban's not going to be lifted, and and already they've 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 uh, in in '69 they've issued uh, the reaffirmation that it's fixed doctrine. Yeah, and, yeah. And with the with the with the first presidency statement, which curiously enough was not signed by David O. McKay, but it was signed by the two counselors, Ann Eldon Tanner. Was this and December, Brown. December of '69? Uh, yeah, it was signed. The, the statement. Yeah, McKay died in January. Right? Yeah, yeah. He the statement comes out uh, just before his death. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. statement. It, it's a curious timing because he is so feeble. Uh, President McKay is so feeble. He's unable to sign the statement. It's only signed by the two counselors, and it's one of those situations where. Uh, uh, Brown is compelled to affix his signature to this. I mean, this is the ultimate humiliation that he's forced 
it's sort of like something out of the Godfather. Either your signature or your 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 brains are going to be on this document. I mean, it's not maybe that's saying it a little bit crudely, but it kind of says almost the same thing. And so Brown feels compelled to affix his signature to this document they absolutely detest right. because for the for to maintain unity within the church. Well, and I know Matt's coming out with his new book on, on uh, all of that. He's got a lot more to say about that than oh, I do. Oh, I know, I know. I cannot wait. <laughs> and and actually, he said a lot on my podcast a few years ago, so uh, you'll definitely want to check that out because the the whole Lee-Brown dynamics is just and, and, and Brown is absolutely devastated by, by uh, in, 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 in retrospect, and he never lives to see the band lifted right. because he dies in 74, 75, I think. And, and, and it, it's, as I say, it's a sad, sad story. And as I say, the double irony is the situation involving his granddaughter. Exactly. That's the supreme irony. I mean, that's one of the things that's always fascinated me about church history are the ironies and the twists and turns. I mean, I don't know how to say this, but it, does it seem like Lee was really heartless, especially with the with the Brown? Well, he that? was adamant. I, I, I don't know, uh, you know, it, 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 on that point, I think he was, he, he was very much, uh, you know, uh, inflexible on the race issue. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind if he had lived a normal lifespan, if he had lived, you know, of a, a, a church leader into his 90s, he was only in his early 70s when he died. If he'd have lived 20 more years, we, I, we could still be stuck with the ban. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I'm pretty convinced of that. I don't know. As I say, who's, we can't predict the future, but he was pretty adamant about that. As I say, right up until his death. I mean, reflective, and, and, and that was a real find for me. I discovered that, that letter, those, that exchange between Lee and uh, uh, Hubie Brown's uh, daughter. In, 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 it was in the papers of, of his personal papers, which I had access to, which nobody had ever seen that document. And what did the document say? Well, as I say, it was as a personal correspondence between, you know, there there were two letters. One, oh, him and yeah, Brown's yeah, from 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 the from the daughter to Lee, you know, saying my son, my my uh, son-in-law, my my African American son-in-law is very distraught about the black issue and about his status in the church. He refuses to join the church because he feels like he's unworthy. He feels like he's in a cursed race. Do you see a parallel with LGBT issues today? Oh boy, that that's a quagmire, isn't it? It's a real quagmire. I, I have a gay brother. In fact, the, my brother who just I, I just took to the airport, and I I've I've seen him. I I saw him struggle through the course of his life over that issue, and finally to the point where he's able to resolve uh, his. Uh, he he's in a very loving relationship. Uh, they're married. In Alabama, of all places. Oh wow! And, uh, and 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 he struggled for many many years. Struggled with that issue. He wasn't a particularly active believing Latter Day Saint because he's he's extremely bright and articulate. Like me, he asked too many questions, and so really he never. You know, by the time he was in his teenage years, he was uh, not involved in the church. But there was always that element of, uh, you know, uh, somehow the. 
that uh, the, the uh, way the church has handled it. I mean, like Harold B. Lee considered it an abomination, an awful thing. He, he, had, he had some pretty nasty things, I guess we'd call them today, to say about homosexuality at, uh, in conformity with his conservative views. And I, uh, I, I feel the church is really in a very difficult position on that issue, unlike the black issue, where uh, it, there are clear evidence that blacks were indeed ordained, and you know, uh, to the to the priesthood in the early church. As far as the LBGQ issue, uh, it 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 runs counter to to basic Mormon uh, Latter Day Saint theology, the concept of how they view the internal concept of family. Uh, you know, the whole idea of same-sex dynamics or same-sex relationships being carried into the eternities, that just not, it, it's so counter to the way that uh, the overall Mormon theology is set up, the, the, the eternal nature of families, the propagation of, of, of uh, you know, additional uh, uh, souls in the hereafter and, and all of that, it, it, uh, eternal progression, it, 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 it runs counter to what, you know, what is essential Mormon theology. And so I have a very hard time seeing how the church is going to uh, resolve that conundrum. But that's just me from, uh, I'm an inactive, non-practicing Latter-day Saint, somewhat of an outside observer. So I, there might be other dynamics going on with among church leaders which I'm not privy to, which, but but I, I I really don't see it as 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 really anything that's going to happen in the near future. And I would say likewise, that's probably true with the idea of ordaining women. Only maybe that's less so because again, it runs counter to the basic patriarchy of the way the church is structured. I mean, we've gotten so used to it's run by men. It's been run by men from the very beginning. I, I, I tend to disagree with the, the, you know, with Mike Quinn, who claimed that women were ordained to oh. the church, which got him excommunicated. Right. I, 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 I tend to question that because the evidence to that seems, it, it doesn't seem convincing enough to me. And I, you know, I, uh, he got excommunicated specifically, I guess, for that, for that article, and it seems like. Uh, to me, it, it, it seemed like it was kind of a frail argument. I, I thought, I, I'm sure he was excommunicated more for the overall body of his work and for the fact that it was clear that he was, uh, he was gay. Well, and Margaret <laughs> Toscano makes a claim that, <laughs> that the Relief Society was a priesthood quorum. So you, you, yeah. you, don't, you don't see it that way? Either? Well, I, 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 maybe, uh, uh, I, I would see it maybe as, uh, as an auxiliary priesthood of, of priestesses but they they don't have the same degree uh, of uh, of authority or clout. I, I mean, how would it fit in with the overall structure of church leadership? Uh, you know, a, a, a relief society quorum of priestesses. I, you know, in studying the evolving uh, structure of the church, how the how how the organizational structure evolved. I I I wonder how that would fit within the overall. Uh, structure of the church, the way that it was developed, you know, 35 when you start, you know, you have the major changes, the, the setting up of the Quorum of the Twelve, First Presidency, and the 70s, 
and then getting to the end of Joseph's life, it could have moved in that direction, perhaps, because he had already established the idea of, of, of you know, being a king, you know, the idea of, of the, uh, what do I, the, the kingdom of God, and, the, uh, uh, and he'd established the uh, uh, quorum of the anointed. But it seems like he was establishing a number of new, right at the end of his life, a number of new uh, uh, institutions or structural institutions. And so the structure of the church was becoming more complex by the end of his life. And, and I, I found that very intriguing. That, and and, and uh, uh, the idea that the uh, Relief Society, you know, is, 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 they are priestesses, kind of fits in with what he's doing with these other aspects of the church. So maybe eventually it would have evolved into, a, you know, women would have had more of a role in the actual running of the church, uh, you know, and, and, and driven in part maybe by polygamy. I don't know. I mean, it, I've always found one of the most intriguing questions in studying church history, the, the very end of Joseph Smith's life. If Joseph Smith had not been assassinated, how would the structure of the church had evolved uh, subsequently? Because so many interesting things were happening right at the end of Joseph's life. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So, I mean, <laughs> this is kind of off the topic of Harold but I, you know, I even got let's off go of Let's go there. Um, because, you know, I was at the fair conference, I told you yesterday, and, you know, there was a woman, I wish I could remember her name, that spoke about the kingdom of priests and priestesses, you know, and she, she was quoting Jonathan Stapley's article about uh, uh, women used to give blessings. And, right. And Joseph said, what's the harm? If, if people are healed, you know, it, it's God obviously accepts it. Well, and, and we've taken that, that lasted up yeah. through the, about the 1940s, 50s. Right, yeah, there. I think, yeah, and right. I don't see why that couldn't come back. And I know Quinn and, and Margaret Toscano both say, you know what? I mean, Margaret basically says, by virtue of the endowment, um, women have priesthood. Yes. And um, yes, I this agree. woman that spoke yesterday, I think she was quoting Jonathan Stapley, um, said that uh, just a woman's baptism gives her a form of authority, which I thought was very interesting. Um, and And I know Quinn said if the president of the priesthood, who is currently President Nelson, just he could make a proclamation and say, yes, women can be bishops or women can be apostles or whatever. Like, it's his decision as, as president of the priesthood. Well, I, I you know, that sounds like a nice, good argument. And, I, you know, I, I, I consider myself very much a, a person who would favor women having the priesthood because I... I, I think uh, women are every, every bit as capable, in some ways more capable, of making leadership uh, decisions. And I think that would have been more of a possibility at Joseph Smith's time because of all the other changes he was making in terms of leadership. But the way the leadership of the church is today, it's been so fixed and so structured. And actually, uh, I think a counter-argument be made that the church has actually moved more and more in the opposite direction. They've taken away uh, women's empowerment in, 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 in a lot of ways. I mean, the correlation was, you know, what Lee was responsible for in correlation in many ways took away uh, 
from women the uh, the authority to make budgetary decision, the authority to publish their own uh, journals and other publications. And uh, part of the correlation thing was placing uh, these auxiliaries, the, the, the women-dominate auxiliaries like the primary, the, the uh, Young Women's uh, MIA, and uh, the Relief Society directly under priesthood authority. And, uh, you know, that, that because... Lee's intention, it wasn't because he was a misogynist, it's because he wanted greater efficiency and and the church has moved in this direction of of driven from the top uh, uh, authority and uh, I guess the the, uh, argument against, so it's a lot less likely today I, 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 I contend it's a lot less likely today than that would have been at Joseph Smith's time when the leadership structure was still in, in and, and, and the organizational structure of the church was still in more of a state of flux because after his death, you know, things became much more uh, structured uh, because otherwise, I, you know, I, because, you know, people were confused about where is Joseph Smith taking the church? That's why there was so much fragmentation after Joseph's death and so... Immediately after Brigham Young comes in, I argue this in my Brigham Young biography, he's, he's very much uh, determined to make sure things are structured. He clips the wings of the Relief Society initially, whereas, you know, it's, rid of the corner, yeah, you know, yeah, okay. exactly. And, and, uh, and uh, under correlation, I would argue that Harold B. Lee and correlation were doing the same thing. By, by making the leadership uh, or the structure of the church much more uh, top-down because as the church has grown internationally and, uh, you know, that has become uh, an absolute priority if you're going to keep, you know, maintain the uniformity and the structure of, of the teachings and so on. Uh, I, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I have a hard time seeing the church moving toward uh, giving women, uh, you know, offices in the priesthood. They might, they might say, well, maybe we'll call the religious society, maybe we'll go back to what Joseph, during Joseph's time, will say they're priestesses and, uh, you know, and, 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 and all of that. But I don't, I don't see that very likely either because if you look at the demographics of the church uh, where they're enjoying the greatest growth, is in those countries outside the United States where the members tend to be more conservative and more orthodox, more willing to follow the dictates of the top-down leadership. And so I I hate to sound like I'm a pessimist, but I I would tend to question uh, whether that is in the offing. I I could be wrong. Let me throw something at you (laughs) that President Nelson has done because I do think... Uh, this has been a, a relatively big change. Um, you know, I was—I uh, know that with baptisms now, it doesn't have to be a man that witnesses the baptisms. And I, you know, I was with my son at the temple recently, and you know, women can be witnesses, and um, and so that's been a recent change that has it kind of expanded women's role in the temple, or even at a, at a live baptism. You know, not in the temple. Um, so it does seem like President Nelson's kind of expanding a little bit. Comments on that? Yeah, well, uh, I, I I agree. They're trying to give women more of a role 
in the performance of these, like you say, in performance of ordinances and stuff like that, and even in the running of a of of, of particular wards or congregations. I, I guess they have a don't they have a stru- a structure where they bring in the women in in you know in, in what they call a what what they call it where they where there there there's the bishopric and PEC Priest and Executive Council. Uh, yeah, doesn't each ward have kind of an executive council right. where 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 and women are included? Young women are yeah, where, where women are included in that. So I think the church the ward council, I guess. Yeah, well. yeah, ward council, and they that's something that's different that hasn't existed before. So I think that there's there's a movement to try to give women more of a voice. I mean, there's a difference between giving women more of a voice and giving them the authority to perform ordinances. I'm, and I don't, and that I think that's a tougher nut to crack. I think the the church has become very conscious of giving women more of a voice, including them in conference talks and 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 so on, because they're sensitive to the fact that uh, that uh, of what's been going on in the larger society, where women have gotten to be more and more. Involved in in uh, the larger secular society and running corporations and uh, and and in the leadership positions in other churches and and in, you know all, all in politics you know that we're a society where where we're really driven by gender equality and and uh, and so I, I I think these are attempts to try to give some of that sense of of, of a greater participation but. When the rubber hits the road, would they have the authority to act in the position of being uh, a bishop or a counselor? Uh, you know, in contrast yeah. to what you have in the community of Christ. And Quinn says all that has to happen is President Nelson says, "Yeah, now they can be." A <laughs> but but what, would the rest of the leadership go along with that? I mean, somebody like uh, you know, I, I see uh, when Nelson departs the scene that the next leader of the church is going to be Dallin Oaks, and I see him as a much more orthodox, uh, uh, kind of a, a more stricter by numbers guy than, than Nelson is. I, uh, it's ironic because I think there's about 10 years between uh, Oaks and Nelson, and, and I used to think that Oaks might be the more liberal when he first went on to 12, because I, 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 you know, I followed his career very, very closely because... Uh, I think I may have told you this. Uh, you can I tell you us this. again, people. No, they don't want to hear it again, do they? No, not again. No, no, not again. I, I, I dated uh, 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 Dallin Oaks's uh, sister-in-law when I was in college. At that time, he was a professor at the uh, University of Chicago before he became BYU president. He was married to uh, the older sister, June yeah. Dixon, and I was... I, 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 I was dating Linda Dixon. It was a summer romance, and uh, and uh, you know, as I as I as I tell people, when he, when when Dallin Oaks was elevated at the twelve, and he he you know he'd come in after Wilkinson as president of uh, of BYU and seemed to be a a, a, a fresh a, a breath of fresh air after the Wilkinson regime, and and uh, seemed to be more. Uh, and and he'd also co-authored a book. He he had training as a historian. He'd co-authored a very definitive study uh, with uh, Marvin Hill called Carthy's Conspiracy. So he had experience as a historian. Yeah. And 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 that it was That's a, a great fairly book. yeah it was a fairly uh, open-minded book. And so I thought that uh, gosh this guy's uh, you know he's coming in as a fairly young age. Well, and he helped with dialogue too. Yeah, he was on. Yeah, I mean all of this seemed to be. 
you know, seem to indicate that perhaps he's going to be, uh, you know, a, a more moderate, maybe maybe not a liberal voice, but a more moderate, more like a Hubie Brown maybe or something like that. And actually what has happened is he's moved more and more to the other direction. And, uh, and, and that's kind of an interesting story in of itself, what has pushed him in that other direction. And I think it's maybe the, I think it's the demographics of the church, as I say, you know, the, uh, the, the church is enjoying its strongest growth in those parts of the world where, where, where the, the people that are joining tend to be more conservative. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think a lot of his, the fact he's moving more and more to the right is driven by church demographics, uh, which is, it, it makes it tough for American Latter-day Saints, uh, you know. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I didn't mean to get off on that. That's okay. We, we do tangents here. So <laughs> a little bit of a tangent from a tangent. Well, let's jump back to Harold B. Lee. Um, there was a story about Ervil LeBaron. What can you tell us about Ervil LeBaron? Well, there was a, a, an apparent death threat because Ervil LeBaron was involved in the killing of Rulin Allred in 1978. So he was kind of a loose nut anyway. And so there was fear that perhaps... Uh, uh, LeBaron I think, was a polygamist, right? Yeah, yeah, own, uh, down in Mexico. And they, they kind of a you know, violent character. And, and uh, so there was a threat, there, there was a perceived threat that he, you know, and this, I guess this had been before Allred, because Allred wasn't killed until 78, and Harold B. Lee, you know, had been dead for quite a while. But this was, uh, you know, a threat which was taken seriously, and, and it... Uh, it, it didn't amount to anything. I, I, I just mentioned it in passing in my book. You know, it, 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 uh, I, I, what it did is it forced the church to tighten up its security in the church office buildings and stuff like that, and, and just people just couldn't walk in. Because LeBaron was, had, had a hit out on, I know, President Kimball. It was, was it maybe on Harold Believe as well? Yeah, yeah. I, as I recall, I, I, as I say, I, I didn't go into a lot of detail because I didn't have a lot of information on that incident. But the, but the upshot was that uh, it, it, it compelled a, a tightening of church security. Mm-hmm. Well, um, one of the other things that I thought was very interesting, um, in fact, I think Matt Harris just mentioned this recently in at MHA, but it was in this book as well was that um, President Lee had purchased land for the Brazil Temple right, yes. right before his death. Yeah. So I found that very interesting because, according to Matt Harris, that temple was instrumental yes, that's um, true. <clears throat> in overturning the ban because... Brazil was full of interracial. That's couples. right. Yeah, and and I, you know, I think it was part of the international uh, expansion of the church. I don't know if uh, if if President Lee, uh, you know, uh, agonized over what the racial implications are of that. It'd be nice to to have access to the uh, you know to his uh, presidential papers and and the official correspondence that was going on back and forth whether that was a topic that came up, but it was nowhere mentioned in the sources that he contemplated that uh, they'd have to face a problem of race. Uh, although he himself, as he traveled, as I talk about in the book, he, he encountered several instances of where, uh, you know, the, uh, the position and, and, and the status of blacks came up visiting South, uh, South America, visiting South Africa. But he didn't... Uh, you know, he didn't seem to contemplate, well, gosh, maybe we ought to consider lifting the ban because we are, you know, I mean, he does encounter, you know, instances of 
of, of blacks and, and, and their status in the church, but he never really elevates it to the level where he's agonized over that the way that Spencer W. Kimball, his successor, is, or that Hubie Brown was before him. As I say, I think part of it is just caught, is, he was uh, so focused on maintaining the orthodoxy of Mormon beliefs and practices and, and maybe saw this as, you know, if the, if the ban is lifted, how's that going to affect other doctrines and other, other practices within the church itself? If they, and, I, and, and if his papers were available, you know, we could, that, that issue could be uh, elucidated in greater detail. Or if the correspondence that others received, uh, you know, that, that would be available because, you know, he corresponded with lower level, you know, mission presidents and, and so on. And that's going to be a task for another historian who does, because as I say, this is far from a definitive biography. This is an overview, but the real definitive full-bodied biography on Harold B. Lee remains to be seen. Mine is just an overview to try to give a sense of, of what his significance and importance in, in the church was, which I didn't think that the previous biographies by, uh, by Gibbons and by uh, his son-in-law, Goats, I don't think they, they elucidated fully to what his impact and significance were. And that's, what I, that's where I feel, even though as thin as my volume is, it, 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 it does that more thoroughly, but as, as, as I indicate, there, it's a much more nuanced, it's a much more detailed story, and uh, those documents, unfortunately, are not available. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully Matt can get his hands on it. <laughs> well, Matt has done a great job in getting hold of this stuff. Oh, I know uh, on, on On Hubie Brown, he has gone a lot further than I ever dreamed of going in, in his biography of Hubie Brown than I ever had any intention of going to in my little Harold B. Lee. Well, it's the one question that, that nobody can answer. I know they can answer, but, you know, because you just talked about how Lee was very, you know, adamant about the ban with Hubie Brown's granddaughter. And then... Um, but then he buys land that turns out. Yeah, but I, I, I. So I'm wondering, did, that's did, a good question. You did raised, President Kimball repurpose that? Did Did Lee have other ideas for that land? Or I don't well, know, I mean, it was going to be. They were going to build a temple, but I I guess he figured maybe they could continue to do what they'd done in the past. You know, continue to try to avoid uh, baptizing and proselytizing to people that were of questionable lineage that. Uh, he, you know, I, I don't think he envisioned how the growth of the church would explode in Brazil, because I think Brazil today has the third largest uh, total membership in the entire church. I think I'm correct on that. I think I think Mexico is next, and I think Brazil is third. I could be wrong. I haven't seen the exact demographics on that, but I know, you know, I, I don't think anybody anticipated that the church would grow as fast and rapidly and, and, and drive the need to lift the ban in, 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 in 78. And I, you know, because that would have been, you know, Lee dies in, in 74 and, and, and the temple, you know, the, uh, the ban is lifted in, in 78. And I, you know, and I, I, I just wonder if, if Lee really uh, anticipated that the growth would be in the direction that it was, because up to that time, they had been very careful in making sure they could trace the uh, uh, 
uh, lineage outside the country. Well, and then the whole issue back <laughs> in '65 with Nigeria, yeah. and Lee was adamantly opposed yeah, to even because sending he, missionaries there. He could say he could see that it opened a whole Pandora's box because the whole issue there was who's going to supervise and run these congregations? Are they going to they're going to have to keep sending whites down there to run these congregations? And and Lee could see that uh, you know unlike Brazil where you have a uh, more of a mixed population and, and could rely more on native membership. You couldn't do that in Nigeria because it's, you know, almost entirely an, you know, black African nation. Right. And uh, so I, I, I think that's why he was so, because, he, he, you know, he'd say, this is going to open up the need to give him the priesthood. And he didn't want that at all. But, so it's interesting <laughs> because you say he wasn't your classic racist no, no, not 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 in in the same category as uh, as a Bruce R. McConkie or a, or a Marky e. Peterson or even a Joseph Fielding Smith, who who really had this myopic view of, of of race as a doctrine within the church. Lee was just more of an institutionalist. As the yeah, way I'd done say things and we're going to keep doing them the same way. Yeah, 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 and 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 maintain the the. Uh, the orthodoxy of practices and beliefs. I, I, because he would have had, I think he would have said a lot more on the race issue because I, I would even, even include in that more racist category Ezra Taft Benson because, you know, the scary thing is if, uh, if, if uh, Lee, you know, the, the successor after uh, Lee, because uh, Kimball was in questionable health. I mean, right. he, he'd had all of this heart surgery. He'd had cancer, throat cancer. And, and Kimball was sure that he was going to predecease Lee. And, and if that had been the case, uh, you know, Lee had lived on for another five, ten years. Ezra Taft Benson would have become president of the church. And there's no way on God's earth that uh, Benson, I mean, given his, his attitudes and behavior with regard to race, uh, that Benson would have lifted the ban. But it is interesting to me that Benson was the one who called the first black general authority Helvisio Martins. Yeah, yeah. Well, by that time, the ban had been lifted. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he didn't lift the ban. Right. But the ban had been lifted, and now it was church. Uh, it was as part of the, the church canon. I wonder how much Hinckley and uh, Monson had to do with that. Any ideas? I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, Benson, uh, you know, Matt has done the definitive work on on Benson as well. And Benson was, uh, he, 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 he was a whole different uh, breed of animal. His, his, his uh, ideology was driven by this strong conspiratorial John Birch uh, right. ideology that, I mean, the whole family, including his two sons and wife, were, 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 were members of the John Birch Society. And Lee, uh, um, Benson himself was a was a strong sympathizer, and he even, you know, with Benson, as you're aware, he wanted to run on the uh, uh, racist uh, 1968 American Independent Party ticket with George Wallace, right. and he kept on trying to get permission from David O. McKay to do that. So that tells you where he stands on race, the fact that he's w willing to run with a blatant racist on, on a third party ticket in 68, and even before that, they tried to form their own uh, very ultra conservative John Birch political party called the uh, 76, the Spirit of 76 party, where he would be the presidential candidate and Strom Thurmond, an absolute hardcore 
uh, segregationist to be his vice presidential running mate. So, you know, uh, as I say, if uh, if Lee had uh, if if uh, if Lee had lived, uh, you know, a few more years, and and let's say uh, uh, Spencer W. Kimball had died, you know, sooner, you know, than Lee, or uh, or even if he lived through to eighty five when Kimball did die. Benson was next. Yeah, right? he was next, and he was in there until 90. Right. And so who comes after, you know. And Hunter. Yeah, Hunter comes after after Benson. And, yeah, so, yeah, I, I, I mean, it would, I, I, I feel it would take an, a, another 10, 15, 20 years if the church was going to move in that direction. And it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been under either Lee or Benson. It wouldn't have been under either one of those. You talk more about Benson, because you you and Craig Foster have the book on... Right, The American Presidency, Quest of the American Presidency. Yeah. So if people want to check that out. Yeah, that's that's where we got into Benson. And I I did a subsequent article uh, on Benson that was part of of, uh, uh, Matt Harris's anthology. You know, he did, he did, you know, uh, Matt did two works. He did the 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 more narrative history overview, and then he did an anthology, and I've got an essay in there that I updated. Thunder from the right. Yeah, thunder from the right. I've got an essay in there which I found additional information showing how closely linked Benson was to the John Birch Society, uh, you know, when he and how 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 he was so politically ambitious. He he wanted to be president of the United States. There's no question about it, and I and that's the argument that I because I found more evidence to support. How hard driven he was in his polit- he had what I call Potomac fever. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, one last thing I thought I would talk about before I let you go, um, and this doesn't really so much to do with Lee, but I found it interesting. Was Marky Peterson wanted uh, Lester Bush excommunicated? Can you tell us more about that story? Well, I don't know a lot of detail in it. As I say, I, I, I as I say, it was just a passing uh, thing, and and I guess it was J. Willard Marriott who was the president of the uh, of, of 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 the stake in which uh, Lester Bush uh, was a member, and I guess he resisted doing that. I guess, uh, uh, and I, I guess he was able to survive. I mean, J. Willard Marriott, pretty prominent guy, you know. Right. And, uh, yeah. And money talks, and I, and I think influence, and you know, because he was much more influential than Marky e. Peterson, who is a, who is a a, a a Mormon apostle who, outside of Utah and the Mormon Church, has heard of Marky e. Peterson. So I think that uh, uh, Marriott was wise enough to to resist uh, doing that. From what I've been able, I, I don't have a lot of information on that, but that's the uh, that's that that's the kind of the conclusion I've come to, and. Uh, uh, but uh, you know, as part of the anger that was felt toward uh, uh, Lester Bush's a wonderfully uh, researched essay that really opened up the whole, it, it influenced my scholarship. I I right. I, I uh, really owe him a, a debt of great da- a, a, a gratitude for, uh, and and it's it's sad because. He was a, a practicing, active Latter-day Saint, and all that Lester Bush was trying to do in his, uh, if you read his article very carefully, he was trying to get the church to, uh, to, to, to acknowledge 
that, uh, that the black priesthood ban was not linked to essential Mormon practices or doctrine. I mean, the way he wrote that article, he downplays uh, the ideas that uh, I, I developed in my own study, that, that there was an element of racial identity, you know, ethnic whiteness and all of that, that Paul Reeve has subsequently built on and that uh, other scholars have, have built on. But, but what Lester Bush did in his article, he downplays the fact is that, well, black, uh, you know, this idea of black priesthood denial was never really a part of essential Mormon uh, doctrine or belief because what's notably omitted from Lester Bush's article, no mention whatsoever of, of the ideas in the Book of Mormon of, of darkness, of, of blackness being a divine curse. And, and, and that was the elephant in the room that he never acknowledged in, in his study. And I felt if you're going to talk about the development of Mormon uh, racial attitudes toward blacks, you've got to talk about what racial attitudes were toward American Indians because there's an overlap there. And he completely, he didn't mention the Book of Mormon at all. And, and that was part of his larger scheme because he felt if he could leave out the Book of Mormon and uh, de-emphasize uh, the some of the racist statements that were made by early church leaders say, well, they were their opinions. They really didn't reflect uh, essential church uh, doctrines. Did and that, that save him that, from excommunication? Uh, and, and, well, I, well, he, he uh, there was uh, Lester Bush's modus operandi, which he was trying to you know, do, it's kind of nuanced in his article. He felt if they read that, they'll realize that they can lift the ban and it won't violate uh, essential Mormon uh, doctrines or oh. practices. It, it, that was his agenda. He wanted to get the church to lift the ban by acknowledging, well, it, it, for one thing, it wasn't, uh, it started by Brigham Young and, and that Joseph Smith had ordained these early, you know, at least one, two early blacks, and that uh, Joseph Smith, uh, you know, statements really didn't, there was no evidence at, at all that he said that blacks. Uh, could not hold the priesthood. There was no evidence whatsoever, and uh, and he felt that the church had an out. You know that it, and 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 so I think he was he was absolutely shocked and uh, and you know floored when when the the reaction was just the opposite uh, by on the part of Harold Lee and other church leaders. And Harold Lee immediately has his uh, his uh, god awful essay that he'd written back in 1945. Birthright of, a, of of you know uh, of, of of a noble uh, yeah you know uh, youth of a noble youth of a nor, nor youth of a uh, a noble birthright republished in a, a in a volume that was issued in nineteen right after Bush's book came out that was in seventy three yeah yeah early seventy three uh, I, I I guess early seventy three yeah uh, the year that he died uh, you know because he died in December yeah. Yeah, and can you talk about his death and, and what led up to his death? Because it sounds like he had a lot of health problems. Oh, yes. I mean, that, uh, that weren't well known at the time. I, I, I refer that he perhaps suffered from what I would call the JFK syndrome, that he appeared to be look a lot healthier and, and vigorous than he really was. Because throughout his life, he continued to have various health problems. And part of those were, were the result of, uh, you know, whatever uh, ailments that he had inherent but also that he was so hard driven that he 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 had to be uh doing stuff all the time he you know he was very devoted to his callings and so on and and he drove himself to the point where he you know 
it, it complicated his health problems even further. So he continued to have problems with ulcers, with uh, various other ailments. And, uh, and so uh, it was, uh, you know, so even up to, the, up to the time of his death, he appeared to be, you know, in, in, he appeared to be a lot healthier than he really was. And people kept telling him, you need to slow down. You're endangering your health. Various people around him, I talk about that in the book. And, uh, and he refused to. He says, I've, I've got to do what I've got to do. I've only got so much time to do it. I mean, that, that, he was just a hard-driven uh, in, individual. And that's why he was so accomplished was because he was pushing himself to the max all the time. And, and, it, and, and finally caught up with him when he was, uh, you know, uh, I guess it was a major heart failure. You know, he'd had close calls before. You know, a number of close calls was I described in the book itself, because uh, I think the health issue was really something that was mentioned in the earlier biographies. But I, I, I think it was uh, more of a problem throughout his life than is generally acknowledged. And and you could say that he virtually wore out his body by the time he was uh, in his early seventies. And 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 this the the final illness that took him took him in a matter of hours. I mean, it was it, day after Christmas. They rush him to the hospital, and and uh, and he's gone within hours. It, and, and and that's it's such a shock because, you know, he's only in his early seventies. The youngest, uh, you know, he he when he died, he was the youngest prophet since Joseph Smith. Hmm. Well, what are your final thoughts? Because I know you said you, you approached this with some trepidation. And did you learn to like Brother Lee? Or? Well, that's a good question. I, I, I don't think that I got to like him any better. I'll put it that way. But I learned to have greater respect for who he was, what he did, and what he accomplished as a seminal church leader that made the church what it is today whether for better or for worse. I think a, a, a lot of the uh, conservatism, the orthodoxy and everything else, he perpetuated through his successors, through his, through his protégés like uh, uh, Boyd K. Packer is, is probably a, a, a prominent example. Uh, you know, he, he, he perpetuated a more conservative Mormonism and a more efficient Mormonism in terms through the correlation those are the two things that I think are his lasting legacy today is that the church is more conservative in enforcing, you know, kind of a greater conformity of beliefs and practices. Because when I was growing up, you know, in, in the 50s during the McKay era, there was more latitude, more, more, uh, more willingness to allow for arguments of uh, debate and discussion on, on controversial aspects of church doctrines and practices, whereas uh, today that is not within the realm of discussion. You go to your meetings and they give you a set, uh, uh, a set liturgy and you, you don't have that same openness. And part of it's because of the autonomy of the auxiliaries. I remember my mother, as a Relief Society president, uh, you know, preparing lessons on theology and doctrine that were discussed and debated in her Relief Society classes. And you don't have that today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, sure. it's a much more regimented. I I think I'll, I'll sum it up by quoting. Uh, 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 I guess it's uh, it's um, uh, Armand Moss, one of my favorite people. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it, it's, it, he goes on to say that correlation tightened the screws on a pro, pro, uh, 
potentially errant membership. Centralized control, and I'm quoting uh, Armand here, uh, the major aim of the correlation movement caused many church members to question whether there was any room for tolerance and autonomy. While correlation was originally intended to eliminate duplicate and inefficient programs, it ultimately produced a standardized and sanitized, and I'm quoting here, this is not me, mm -hmm. uh, a sanitized international uh, instructional curriculum in which the intellectual threat was being contained by eliminating intellectual inquiry from church education, unquote. That's what Armin Moss said. Yeah, that's not me, that's Armin Moss. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm so sad he's gone. I wish I could have gotten him on the podcast. So. Well, great. Well, what other projects are you working on, Noel? Well, I, uh, I, currently I'm working on family, I'm, I'm, I'm working on an updated uh, study of Eldridge Cleaver. That's one of the oh. things I'm working on. I gave a paper at MHA. I discovered an unpublished uh, uh, autobiography that uh, Cleaver started to write after he, after he became involved with the church in the early 1980s. And it, it, it gives a, a very detailed account of how he, uh, you know, what what drew what drew him to the LDS Church, which I found to be something that was absolutely, you know, to me it it, it yeah. was a mind bender. Yeah. And so uh, I I I've been uh, I want to do more on his how he and how he got involved with the church. He got very involved with W. Cleon Skousen through the Freeman Institute, and he got you know it it started out as as he became. It was through personal contacts and interactions with people who made him feel more than welcome, and uh, so that that was what initially drew him in the church. And I and I'm working on 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 that project. I also for Sunstone I did an auto. Uh, I, I, I got interested with Craig Foster in looking at my family's involvement with plural marriage. Mm. And I, I found, uh, when I was growing up, my family didn't talk at all about it. I didn't realize that they'd even practice polygamy. But as I delved into my family history, which go back to pioneer roots, go all the way back to Joseph Smith, I found that on both sides of my family, they were deeply involved in plural marriage. And even in post-manifesto plural marriage, oh, wow. I found that this one relative of mine, a, a great aunt, the uh, older sister, or the younger, I guess I guess she was an older sister, I think. She was an older sister of my grandfather, from my, grand, my grandfather's side. Great aunt uh, got involved in a post-manifesto polygamous relationship with a guy named Heber Kimball, not Heber Kimball, Heber Benyon. Heber Benyon, at the time that he took my uh, uh, my aunt as a post-manifesto wife wow. in 1901, was bishop of the Taylorsville Ward, an office which he'd held for some 20 years. Kind of a major thing. I thought, wow, how could he be bishop? And 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 he and they did it secretly without telling the children of his first family. I think his first wife knew. And ironically enough, this first wife was the sister of uh, of uh, her, her sister. This first wife, Kim or uh, ben, Benyon's first wife, was the sister of of uh, President uh, of, of, of President Heber J. Grant's wife. That was Heber J. Grant. So they so uh, uh, this Heber uh, Benyon 
and, and uh, President Grant were brother-in-laws when he was taking this second, taking my great aunt. Wow. I mean, it's a fascinating story. Grant was and I, the I'm, one I'm, who wanted to stamp this out. Yeah, and, and that is the very time that Grant, w you know, that he hadn't become president of the church yet, that when, 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 when he commenced this relationship, because he became president, I think it was 1918, when, he, when, when Grant became president of the church. But uh, anyway, so uh, this this uh, Banyan to keep it from it, to keep it secret, he takes my great aunt and, and and they move they move around quite a bit. Various communities, Lehigh, they live in Lehigh. They live up in Box Elder County, and 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 and, and so he's moving his this this family has seven children with my great aunt. Wow. And 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 she was at the time he was forty three. And she was just 21. Oh my goodness! And so I, in in the, in the process, I, I discovered all of this and just sort of blew me away. And it kind of an interesting family because his uh, this uh, great aunt, her younger brother, in this same family was named Samuel Bringhurst, and he became he was president of the Swiss Mission and helped to build, became the first president of the Swiss Temple. He was the very devout, active Latter-day Saint. Mm -hmm. And in the same family, so I've got Samuel Bringhurst, I've got Mamie, her name's Mamie, the one that's married to, to Banyan. And then there's another brother who becomes a career criminal. He ultimately oh, gets involved in a shootout in, uh, in, 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 in California and is executed at San Quentin for killing this policeman in 1924. This all comes out of the same family. That, and my grand, grandfather was a normal, he, he was uh, pretty much of a conventional person. He, he was just an average, hardworking, Latter-day Saint mm -hmm. uh, who, uh, who supported a family of seven children, including my dad. And, uh, and so I, this family dynamics just really has fascinated me. I, I mean, in the same family, you've got you've got a, you've got a post-manifesto polygamist married to a Mormon bishop, and you've got a career criminal, and you've got a guy who becomes a, my my great uncle, who is the mission president, uh, becomes close friends with David O. McKay when they're picking out the site for. If if you've seen the book Saints, have you mm -hmm. seen the new volume Saints, the third volume? volume? Yeah, take a look at the last part. It talks about my great uncle. The one, that was, the one that uh, was the younger brother. And in, this, uh, in, 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 in studying this family dynamic, uh, anyway, when, when the first family, you know, eventually the children of the first family find out what their father has been doing. And this oldest daughter, she goes ballistics when she finds out that her father, because he was able to keep it a secret from the children in this first family. When she finds out, she goes nuts. She's just absolutely irate. She ultimately, you know, becomes disaffected from the church and everything wow. else. And she feels her father's been a great, uh, just really betrayed and, and starts writing this kind of these uh, uh, polemics about uh, how polygamy destroyed my family. She got this one, one uh, memoir, and uh, so it, it's interesting because my great uncle, the one who's the mission president, you know, tries to comfort her. He he writes her a letter saying it would have been better for all of us if this hadn't been kept a secret that our that 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 this post manifesto polygamy took place in our family it would have spared a lot of heartache and everything else and he goes on to try to console 
this, uh, you know, this shirt tail, you know, the, the half-sister, whatever you want to call her, mm-hmm. or not half-sister, but, you know, this, this, this shirt tail relative right. uh, about, uh, you know, what took place within our family. And uh, but it goes on to say, uh, he was a young boy, he was just a young boy when he found out that his sister comes home pregnant. He goes on to say, well, I'll never forget when my sister Mamie came home pregnant. We thought she'd been violated by, you know, some scoundrel or something like that, but then goes on to say, uh, when when we were told what it actually was that it was post manifesto polygamy, we were told that we had to keep it an absolute secret, or Mamie would go to prison. Oh, I mean that's as I say that's compelling history. Yeah, it's my family. Wow. As 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 the Godfather would say, well they didn't always do the right things, but they were my family. Well, it's funny that you, uh, you've done all this work on polygamy and didn't know. I story. didn't realize that. I, I'll give you a copy of my, my paper when you leave. Remind me, I've okay. got an extra copy, and you can read the full thing of what I wrote at Sunstone. Oh, cool. Well, You'll find it cool. interesting, I think. Yeah. Well, cool. <laughs> well, I probably said more than I should, huh? No, you're great. You're great. So, <laughs> any last thoughts before I let you uh, go? No, I. I I'll, I'll, I'll actually be honest with you. I've enjoyed the intellectual stimulation that takes place in your podcast well, because, thank you. uh, no, I, I, I really appreciate the way that you handle gospel tangents because you not only bring out uh, information that I probably intend to bring out, but you bring out, uh, you know, dis- discussion and dialogue, uh, which maybe takes it along because I guess that's why you call it gospel tangents, because you get going on, on these interesting tangents and, and discussing issues that might not already be discussed, and that's why I always enjoy uh, doing the gospel tangents. Well, thank you. You're, you're one of my favorites, Noel. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for being on Gospel Tangents. Really appreciate okay. it. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Dr. Noel Bringhurst. Noel, thank you so much for sitting down with me and talking about Harold B. Lee. It was a very fun conversation, and of course, you're always welcome back on the show. So look forward to your Eldridge Cleaver book coming up. If you like what we're doing here on Gospel Tangents, please become a paid subscriber at gospeltangents.com or patreon.com slash gospeltangents. We've got full transcripts on our website at gospeltangents.com. And if you'd like to check out some of our other conversations, click over here. Thanks.